What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And this is James. We're going to do an episode on The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings, which was directed by Peter Jackson, released in 2001, written by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyena, and Peter Jackson, based on the novel by J.R.R. Tolkien. This film was nominated for 13 Oscars at won four, including Best Cinematography, Best Makeup, Best Visual Effects, and Best Original Score by Howard Shore. Yeah, I think that every Lord of the Rings movie should have won Best Picture when it came absolutely. out. Absolutely. Uh, you absolutely could argue there. that all three are masterpieces. Yeah, that's the thing about this trilogy is that you could say that is it is uh, probably the greatest trilogy because every movie is a masterpiece. And The Fellowship was an amazing starting point and also a game changer for cinema in itself in terms of Peter Jackson's directing, the visual effects, special effects, the the production itself, and just the scope of it. It was astounding to see the first time. We were kids when it came out, and it's something. It's one of my favorite things to watch and easily one of my favorite movies. Yeah, it's ranked 10th best film all time on the IMD user rankings, and all three Lord of the Rings films are actually in the top 14, and Return of the King is ranked 7th on that all-time list. So That's crazy. And you could even argue that this is the best film in the trilogy. Personally, for me, I put it like second best because... Because I really think that the addition of Gollum in the second two are what make those it makes the Return of the King that much better to get that story and that character. I, I agree with you because as great as Fellowship is, it's an amazing story, but it also is missing that essential villain quality that Gollum brings to the second two. So that's why I think Return of the King, I would say, is my favorite of the trilogy. And then Two Towers is my third favorite, but that's like it's still an amazing movie as well, but Gollum definitely does bring that much-needed villainous uh, quality to the film. The best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You'll get specialized perks like messages, personalized videos, podcast schedules, and top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. Head on over to our brand-new website, RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com, to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, which is all up for sale, our custom movie posters— and be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave those five-star reviews. Thank you so much to everyone listening wherever you are around the world. Yeah, and this is a massively difficult task to bring these dense stories that J.R. Tolkien wrote, these characters, these, these plot lines, bring it to a global audience who, for the most part, had never heard of Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. I had no idea what a Hobbit was. I never heard of these characters. So I think it's something that the people in the U.K. were more aware of than people in America, Probably, for sure. yeah. And it's impossible to stay completely accurate to the story when you're dealing with something like this. And I think when you're dealing with filmmaking, of course, there are some things about the stories in, in the film that are both spot on. There are some things that are embellished, some things skipped over, and some things are completely made up. But these are done to achieve the best cinematic experience and story. So if people are upset with differences of the book and the film, that's the reason why it's done. It's because it has to, it's a different experience. Yeah, and a movie adaptation had come out in the, I think it was the 70s, I think in 73. And it was an animated film of The Fellowship of the Ring. It might have been the entire story itself into a long film. and But it was poorly received and uh, didn't do very well. And seeing this inspired Peter Jackson to make the film because he only, only read the novels once. So it's not like he was a super fan. But when he watched that film, I think he saw there was so much potential to make a great film out of it. And that's what inspired him to do it. And uh, he pitched this project to every studio under the sun. And they all said no. And the ones that did say yes, they wanted him to make all three novels into one movie. And he that was his big, like, if, I, if that was his, like, yeah, I can't do that. There's no way that would work, and I can't possibly make that happen. And eventually it did fall into the hands of Miramax, where they agreed to fund him with $180 million. But they wanted it to be two films, a two-parter. And he said, maybe, maybe I'll say yes to that because everyone else said no to me. 
And then while he was mulling that over, he got in contact with New Line Cinema, uh, an older production company that I don't think is around anymore. And but it was big at the time. And they had a they heard this pitch from Peter Jackson. Uh, it was the same pitch that Miramax liked as a two part move uh, franchise with two movies, and then uh, New Line really liked the, the idea, but they said the one problem was they think it should be three movies. Ironically, and so they they greenlit it for Peter Jackson and gave him three hundred million dollars to make the entire project. Yeah, and that's what the fascinating thing about it is um, they shot all three movies back to back to back to back production wise. They didn't. It's kind of like what James Cameron's doing with the Avatar films right now. He's shooting two through five right now. He's he finished. A production on two, three, and, and he's doing four and five right now. Um, so that's basically what James, um, that's what Peter Jackson is. He shot all three Lord of the Rings films and then went straight into post production and editing for Fellowship of the Ring while they were probably finishing up filming at the same time. I don't think the guy slept for six years. Probably not, honestly, because he was because like you just said, they were fin- they were editing Fellowship while he was still finishing the production of the other two. And uh, it's an amazing task that he, this guy did. He must have been working eighteen hours a day for at least six years straight. And it's an incredible production in terms of the scale of it, of it because they basically, as we all know, it was it filmed in New, New Zealand and they built like this like town in New Zealand and they uh, Hobbiton, <laughs> like the uh, production <laughs> and, where, they, where they lived. And it's basically the same thing that Marvel has done in Atlanta, where they have just bought this giant piece of land and then built their base of their production on there. And they did the same thing in New Zealand, where because uh, they employed uh, three thousand people in total. And this includes like production crew and artists and everything and the actors. And so 3,000 people worked on this project and they had a massive production where they had huge building, like uh, constructed buildings and tents that were this is the art department and that's the sets department, that's the props department, that's the costume department. And it was this gigantic scale production that they just kind of like lived there for five years making this gigantic three part picture. And it's an amazing thing that Peter Jackson didn't. He didn't lose control of the set, and he seems to be a great leader because only a great leader can oversee such a large-scale production and number of people, and he seemed to ha- do it without a problem. Hey, everyone. Do you want to be a guest on Raiders of the Lost podcast? We're doing a special giveaway for you to be on our show for Patreon members of Raiders of the Lost podcast. So if you're already a member of our Patreon, we love you, and you are already entered into this contest. If you aren't a Patreon on our Patreon, All you got to do is sign up for one of the tiers. We have a $2 tier, a $5 tier, and a $10 tier, each with different perks. If you sign up on our Patreon, we will enter you into the contest to become a guest on our show. We'll give you one week to become a patron and enter this contest. Go to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast to become a patron today. And it's even more impressive when you think about the task that he had of directing this film and the, the intricate details because Tolkien created such a vast world and these rich characters and environments. And basically, it's just this new world, Middle Earth, that uh, had never been done. It's a fantasy film. And all these little aspects of the production in terms of the practical effects, the computer animated effects, the motion capture stuff that they did with Gollum that had never really been done before, uh, building all the miniature sets. That's why it looks so good is they actually built these places. They built Hobbiton. They built the castles. And they even, they built Hobbiton a year before they started filming just to have it make sure it has that weathered look like it's been lived in and everything like that. And they so, actually hired um, people, shepherds, to bring sheep there to uh, actually eat the grass to make sure the grass was the right uh, height. Yeah, so he had all these m- tiny little details in his head that he was controlling all day for a five-year period that I'm sure is so exhausting on somebody. But he, he somehow hold it, held it together to make three of the best movies ever made. It's an amazing thing, and, and a lot of directors— had thought about 
adapting this and they thought it was unfilmable. Stanley Kubrick was actually asked to direct this and he deemed it unfilmable. But Peter Jackson knew that with the, the dawn of filmmaking technology in terms of using computers to help make films in a big way, he understood that the technology was there and it wasn't fully there yet. He actually, he and his producers were literally creating the technology and the softwares uh, for the CGI as they were filming. I mean, he, the, the workshop way to digital that does uh, some of the best visual effects there are. They win a ton of Oscars and they do huge movies now, but way to, um, began on this production and um, Peter Jackson put his money into it. And so they developed all the softwares that they used to depict the, the war scenes and most of the CGI. So they were literally creating software as they were producing the film. Yeah. And it's a great fantasy adventure. And, you know, these stories are some of my favorite in terms of films and books. You know, you talk about Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. Those are like the top three for me. And you just enter this remarkable fantasy world and it's just like a different experience, I think, than normal films. And it's kind of like out of your body because it's pure imagination. And Peter Jackson just visually harnessed the densities of these stories by Tolkien, which, again, they're so rich in detail and even encyclopedic at times. And he has to do it the right way. And I think the greatest strength that he did when he made the first film and they were writing the script is they focused on Frodo as the main storyline, the main plot of the film. He's the main character and we're on his journey because all these characters, they kind of get equal time in the books. And some you spend more time with, with Gandalf. You spend more time with Elrond. Yeah, it's, and not, so, it's really in the third person. Yeah, and so if you actually spend equal time with all these characters it doesn't have that same emotional cohesion that you get with just following frodo as the main main protagonist and i think that was the smartest move that they did and because frodo is the most relatable character because as they it said multiple times that hobbits are the smallest of beings and the irony of the entire story is that uh, the smallest person can change the world and uh, can contend with the evil power of Sauron. And it relates us to them because the world's so fantastical and there are these monsters and giants and, and creatures and none of that's real. But being by Frodo the entire, for most of the film, it makes us feel like it's grounded in some way, I think. In this film, it's set in Middle-earth and it tells the story of the Dark Lord Sauron and who seeks the One Ring. The ring has found its way to the young hobbit Frodo Baggins. The fate of Middle-earth hangs in the balance as Frodo and his eight companions begin their journey to Mount Doom in the land of Mordor, the only place where the ring can be destroyed. And so it's it's a great plot, really. It's it's an incredible story. And when, I love the world creation, the world building, these different characters, these different races of, of beings. We have the elves, we have the dwarves, we have the halflings, we have men and, and humans. But even the men are different because uh, like the people of Aragorn, Aragorn and, and Boromir, their bloodline, they're different kinds of beings that actually live longer than normal human beings. Yeah, Aragorn can actually, he has incredible strength, much more power than a normal human being does. And he lives to, I think, 150 years old, his 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 race. So he, he looks like a, a normal man, but he's not. It's the Numenorian blood. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped. The leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Again, Raiders of the Lost. Over 2 million men are using Manscaped products, including their incredible waterproof lawnmower, 3.0 groomer with a built-in light. This thing is amazing. You can take it in the shower. It's waterproof and sensitive to the touch. Fellas, you need to get on Manscaped. They have amazing boxer briefs, their cologne, their deodorizers, their wipes. They've sent us everything. Amazing products. 
everyone listening. These are great gifts for the men in your life. So definitely use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping year round from manscaped.com. And so actually, since we just brought up age, I want to run through the characters and their ages because I think it's so fascinating. Yeah. It really it brings you into the fantasy world even more. And so I'm going to go from oldest to youngest in terms of the main characters of the first film. And Galadriel is 8,372 years old. She's played by Kate Blanchett. Still looks great. Looks fantastic. <laughs> Glowing skin. Elrond is 6,518. He's starting to look his age a little bit. <laughs> Hugo. Legless is actually 2,931 years old. I thought you said legless. <laughs> legless isn't le- 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 legless. He has legs. Legless has legs, and he's 2,931 years old. Arwen, played by Liv Tyler, she's actually over 2,700 years old. Gandalf the Grey is 2091, but Gandalf the White is actually zero, so he's a, he's a little baby. But also, he's an interdimensional being yeah, as well. So, you know, it's yeah. just a joke. And then Gollum is 589 because the ring had kept him alive and turned him into, from Smeagol into Gollum, which we learn later on. Uh, Gimli is 140, and these are all the times of Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, Bilbo is 129, and although hobbits do age slower than humans, Bilbo looks especially young, young for his age because the the ring has kept him youthful. So that's why he looks so young, even though he's so very old. Aragorn is actually 88 during this film. Frodo is 51. Again, hobbits age much much slower, hence why he looks so young. And in the in the books, he actually has the ring for 17 years while Gandalf is going to learn information about the ring. And that's why he, when Gandalf comes back after a, a hiatus, he's like. Frodo, you haven't aged a day. And that's why he, uh, Sam Wise is actually, they look the same age, Sam and Frodo, because, because Frodo hasn't aged since he got the ring yeah, in the so, books. Yeah, and so Sam Wise is 39. So it's both hobbits look young and age slower, and Frodo also had the ring. That's why he mm-hmm. looks so much younger. Sam Wise is 39, and Sam Wise, his family worked for Frodo, which is why he calls him uh, Mr. Frodo. So it's not just because he's younger, it's because his bloodline, they were, I think, just different social class than Frodo. Frodo is a, is the leader of the clan of Baggins. So he's a respected member of the community. Merry is 37. Pippin is 22. Hence why them two are so immature in these films. And then Boromir is 41 years old. And he's of the same line as Aragorn. So he can expect to live much longer. He looks 41 though. Yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> he's maybe the only one that looks his age in this movie. That's that's amazing. The ages. I love that. And Gandalf the Grey, he's, he represents a character. He visually looks like he's about 60. Mm-hmm. to us and so that's i think just that's so fascinating all these characters and the, it really enhances that fantastical element of this whole story yeah it's amazing because i think on paper before movies these movies were made i think on paper it's it could sound very nerdy unpopular and obviously not mainstream but what peter jackson did was he took this property and he made such incredible films with it that it became they became some of the most widely successful films ever made and i think they still are the most beloved movies the imdb uh top 14 list is just an example of that and uh, these films would be ageless because i know amazon is uh making a new lord of the rings adaptation for their prime service tv show right billion billion dollar show it's gonna be a five-part tv show it's gonna be uh yeah five seasons and they spent a billion dollars on it but it's going to take place um, several centuries before the events of Frodo and the Fellowship. And the War of the Ring. Yeah, so it's going to sh- tell the war of the different races of Middle-earth warring against Sar- Sauron's forces. It's going to be the age where Isildur was alive. And Isildur. Where- yeah, so that, that, that's <laughs> Isildur. 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 Say it like Spanish. Sorry, Isildur. we're going to get so many comments. Do you actually pronounce it wrong? Unsubscribe. <laughs> we get so many unsubscriptions from pronouncing words wrong. Um, and I think 
before we get into the film directly, one of the, my favorite aspects of all these movies, the first three, and I think one of the most important elements is Howard Short's music, which is one of the most inspiring film scores I've ever heard in my life and most recognizable and most iconic. And it's it's probably the most unique score I've ever heard. I think uh, aside from Star Wars, this could be the best music ever made for film. And I think in a lot of ways, it even surpasses Star Wars because I think Star Wars, it has very recognizable themes, but I think these themes are just as recognizable and will be over time. And I think that what he did with the music just totally um, enthralled you with the film itself as it played. And uh, James Horner was actually the first choice for the composer. He's another great composer, but uh, he was unavailable. So Peter Jackson hired Howard Shore and Howard Shore mainly did dark thrillers, dark horror movies. Like he worked with Cronenberg a lot. He worked with, um, he, he does the music for Scorsese movies. If Scorsese doesn't have a dominating soundtrack. Oh, his score in The Departed is yeah, fantastic. Yeah. It's mostly acoustic guitars and yeah. stuff. He, but he also did like seven um, uh, David, in the game, David Fincher's early films. And and so he's always had a very dark palette in terms of music. And uh, no, he had never done anything of this scale, but he managed to bring such an epic size to the music. It it made the movie what it was, I think, in a lot of ways. If you didn't have Howard Shore's music, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah, it really lulls you into this fantasy world that you're entering. And just from the opening credits and that opening prologue, just the themes that just it just brings you in. And it's it, I think it might be the most powerful music in terms of how important it is to a film. Absolutely. And then it just gets so loud and bombastic and also all the all the choir work and it just there's something about choirs singing during intense action sequences or scary sequences and it just it makes it feel so epic and otherworldly and there's so much of it in these movies and it works perfectly let's talk about the the ring the one ring to rule them all how do you feel about that the ring of power yeah the one ring it's it's the most powerful artifact ever created in middle earth it was crafted by sauron in the fire of Orodruin, sorry guys for the pronunciation, <laughs> also known as Mount Doom during the Second Age, and, and Sauron's intent was to enhance his own power and to exercise control over the rings of power. So he wanted to gain lordship over the elves and all the other races of Middle-earth, and so he concentrated the ring with his power, and also his soul is concentrated into the ring, so he directly relates to the ring in terms of its power, its damage. If it ever gets destroyed, he directly gets destroyed. It's obviously similar to Horcruxes. It seems as though, I mean, they don't explain it too much in the films or books about Sauron, but it seems like he was a, a powerful sorcerer as well as just this giant immense being. Um, and I'm I'm so curious about seeing him in the Amazon show. Uh, I'm, I can't wait. I'm very fascinated by how they'll depict him. But it, and the thing is, the with the ring is, I, I'm so fascinated by the powers it grants the holder. In terms of, uh, it pretty much grants immortality, although it does have drastically negative effects on who you become in terms of Smeagol going from a, a basically very similar halfling to a hobbit to becoming a monstrous version of himself over the hundreds of years he carried the ring and also providing invisibility, but it has the the crux of being in the sight of Sauron or the wraiths if they're nearby. and But then also it keeps you youthful for a time. Yeah, and actually I believe that J.R.R. Tolkien, when he originally wrote The Hobbit, which was first before Lord of the Rings, right? When he wrote that, I think that was He before. wrote The Hobbit first. Yeah, he actually, the ring is in that, but really the ring is just, 
grants immor- uh, invisibility, and then he actually changes it later on with, I think, a, a, a new addition in the book where it actually gives it that that immense power for the Lord of the Rings films that he created. And, and I actually, I love that concept that you were just talking about how it turns you dark and turns you evil, basically, and corrupts you. But you could also argue that if you were already an evil, dark being, it might even just make you even more powerful. And maybe it doesn't have that same effect because you're so evil or dark, or maybe it even makes you even more sinister. And I love the prologue of this film with Galadriel telling us the story of the rings and the one ring, and we get the the battle and the war. And I think it's just a smart way to open the film because we need a strong few moments of exposition for this world and this storyline you can even compare it to the scroll of the opening of star wars films like the first time you saw it it looks like giving us exposition that the director you you need this information right now at the beginning of the film to understand what we're doing and it's really important because of course star wars does it every film but for lord of the rings they only do it for just one movie that has to translate for three films and so it's very integral part of the film and i loved it and I think it works best with Galadriel rather than I think they shot it with or they they recorded audio with Gandalf doing it. It just didn't have the same effect. Frodo, too. Yeah, Frodo. It's an amazing opening because once it's over, you're like, okay, I'm good. I understand everything about this world. I've learned everything I need to learn about the history of the ring, and I'm just ready to go. So I think Peter Jackson brilliantly set up the film franchise with this opening. It's almost like a Bond movie with the crazy action opening with the battle. Yeah, exactly, And it, but it's all exposition, so it's great. And it's not just someone speaking narration we're watching it happen with action like peter jackson's showing us what happened in the visuals of the rings it's beautiful and then also like because it's such a it has a slow start the first act i think that showing this battle in the opening of the film is vital to keeping audiences uh at the end of their at the edge of their seat when watching this movie because you're on one minute into into this movie and you're seeing the most epic battle you've ever seen in your life on screen. Yeah, it just brings so much anticipation into what you're about to witness. Even though we spend like 20 minutes in Hobbiton and some people like, you know, it slows down and, you know, we're relaxing, we're having a good time and we're laughing. It still gives you that anticipation that like some crazy stuff's about to happen soon. And and obviously in the opening in the prologue, we learned that Isildur, refu- he uh, cut the, the ring off Sauron's hand, but then he refused to tossed the ring into the fires of Mount Doom, instead kept it for himself, which quickly led to his death. And then that's how the ring was lost for like 2,000 years, I think. And that's when Gollum eventually found it. This episode is also sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. If you're checking out our set online, you'll see that our set is decked out with these amazing posters. MoviePosters.com is the number one place to get your posters online. If you're a fan of movies, if you're a fan of TV shows, there's no better way to express that love than with a movie poster. Again, check out our website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com, to check out the custom-made posters James and I made. We did one of The Shining. We also did one of Lethal Weapon, as well as the custom Raiders poster, which MoviePosters.com is selling on their website. So head on over to RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com to check those out. And for any other poster needs, again, go to MoviePosters.com and use our coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. I think that the ring itself... Even though, yes, there are people that den- that have the ability to deny the ring, and it's more often than not people will be unable to deny the ring. Uh, but I think that, like, even like, because Aragorn denies the ring and uh, Galadriel denies the ring, and you can even say Samwise denies the ring usually. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, he only wants to. But it's never offered to him. He he just asks to wear it just to help, help with the Frodo, burden. but he yeah. never wants it. Yeah. But I think that no matter how good someone is, because Frodo, I think, is the the purest of all the characters. Uh, 
if they ever get to that point where Isildur was and where Frodo ends up at the end of the Return of the King, I don't think anyone will be able to throw the ring into the lava pit. I don't think anyone has it in them to de- completely to destroy the ring, which is why the way it was destroyed was with uh, Gollum fighting with Frodo and accidentally falling off the cliff. So I think that the ring is so corruptible and has so much power that even the, the most good of us, they won't be able to destroy it ultimately. Yeah, really all Frodo can do is bring it to Mount Doom. That's the only thing he can do. And you can argue that, like you said, no one could have done that. And that's why Gandalf aggressively refuses the ring and tells Bilbo to never offer it to him again. Or I think he tells Frodo to never offer it to him again because he's such a powerful being that he can't help but be corrupted by it. And then he would have become like super powerful. That would have been crazy. Yeah, and then Boromir has two instances in the first film where he's he's thinking about the ring in the, in the first instance is when he holds the ring on the mountain in the snow and he's like very he's like looking at it and Aragorn tells him to give the ring away and then obviously at the end of the film it, it, when he tries to steal from Frodo so even the, the great men of us he's a prince of Gondor he's even corrupted by it and right after that Aragorn denies the ring but you can tell in his eyes that he's fighting as hard as he can not to take the ring in trying to fight off that temptation yeah there's a couple of really cool production facts about the ring that one of them you just mentioned is that shot with Boromir on the on the mountain in the snow. Before Boromir picks up the ring, um, there's the shot and the ring's in the foreground, which means it's right on the can right up to the camera, and the camera's like on the snow. And then Frodo's in the background. But in reality, a ring is so small that it w- it wouldn't look it would look too tiny. And so they built a ring that was six inches wide <laughs> for that shot. <laughs> and then um, for that... And probably for the opening shots, too. Or yeah, they yeah. Used, or they probably just use a macro I'm lens. I'm sure they use different kinds of rings. Yeah. But no, they didn't. They don't have to use a macro lens if they build a big ring. Yeah, so true. they probably did. But in terms of that amazing shot, when, um, when Bilbo drops the ring, when Gandalf convinces him to just let it go and to leave, um, if you remember, the ring falls onto the floor of Bilbo's home, and it doesn't bounce or anything. It just slams, it just slams yeah. down and doesn't move. And the way they achieved that effect was they magnetized the floor. Oh, that's really so the smart. Floor, the floor was a magnet, so when the ring landed on the floor, it just pressed right against it and didn't move. So it's an amazing little production tricks they use for the ring, which I really love about the movie. And the ring, obviously, in when the film is opening, it's in Bilbo's possession. And basically, the way that Bilbo gets it, it, it differs from the books and movies. And I think there are actually two different versions in the books that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien changed it, obviously, because he wanted to make the ring a more powerful a more powerful element in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He was like, oh, shit, I got way better ideas yeah, for this, this thing. Wait till you guys see. <laughs> so he made new versions of The Hobbit where I, the ring, I think there's a version where Bilbo... Uh, dupes Gollum into giving him the ring and at Mystic with the yeah with a, uh, he loses he makes he tricks him into losing a bet like a, it's a riddle game yeah and he, he gets the ring um in the Misty Mountains and then another version he just he just stumbles upon the ring in the dark and slips it in his pocket he doesn't really think twice about it I think that's what they did in the Hobbit movie I think that's the original well yeah I think that's the original book too mm-hmm. and then um but basically the film opens up where Bilbo's had it and you can you can argue that the ring probably wanted to be apart from Gollum in a way. You know, it was. The, I think they say in the film, it's it's time had come to leave Gollum, and it wanted to find a new being and a new a new master to hold it. And in terms of it, you're talking about Sauron's soul. Yeah, you know what I mean. So Sauron has some some hold over the over the ring, and it he is he lives within that ring as well as being able to see on that tower of Mount Doom. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating if we talk about. Bilbo versus Frodo versus Smeagol slash Gollum and how the ring affects the three of them in different ways. And 
why does the ring affect Frodo so much more than Bilbo in terms in terms of negativity and and uh, more like eating at his soul? And it's I think it's because Bilbo never wanted to destroy the ring, so the ring didn't have to offer up a defense mechanism to try to stop him or or to try to get him found. Whereas Bilbo basically uses it as a tool for the most part, and he he's he lives in harmony with the ring. I would argue that the closer that the ring comes to Mordor, the more powerful it becomes. And so that's why it has more negative effects on Frodo as the story unfolds. Well, both could actually be, they both kind of go hand in hand in a way. Because yeah. the closer you're getting to Mount Doom, the, it's probably assuming. But, you know, it's also watching and sometimes sees Frodo when, yeah. it, when he puts on the ring. And whenever there's a wraith nearby, it, 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 it taps into the power of the ring. So I think that because of the journey, it, it brings so much power to the ring itself. Yeah, but I mean, you can argue, Bilbo has had the ring for decades, but the only time you really see what it's done to him in terms of like this inner monster being is when he sees it on Frodo around Frodo's neck, when he gives, I mean, on, when, yeah, when he sees it around Frodo's neck, after he gives him that mithril elvish chain mail shirt. <laughs> yeah. We see like the, <laughs> you see the evil monster that's deep down inside of him because he hasn't had the ring and, and you know, he doesn't want to live another day without it in a way before he goes off and hangs out with the elves for the rest of his life until his death. And in terms of, of Gollum, he's, he differs from, Bilbo and, and the fact that he was alone and isolated with the ring. Whereas Bilbo was surrounded by friends and family and, and also Gandalf, who played a major part in convincing him to give up the ring because he knew it wasn't good for him. And so since Gollum didn't have anyone around him, it just poisoned his mind and his body over the centuries he had it. Well, two things to bounce off that. You can argue that Bilbo would have eventually turned into something like Gollum or like Smeagol, what he became in terms of, of Gollum, and he maybe would have gone to the to the cave, caves and, and dwelled alone with his ring like that because at some point, you know, he's, he's going to start breaking down and become more evil. I think, I think that would have happened to him at some point. And also, the way that Smeagol, Smeagol, and <laughs> and Bilbo obtained the ring, which obviously we're going to talk a little bit about Return of the King right now, is Smeagol gets the ring through an act of pure evil by murder. So maybe that imprinted uh, a destruction of his soul in a way to make him more susceptible to succumbing to the evil nature of the ring versus Bilbo, who just found it out of curiosity. And I, I would suppose that the thing is, when Bilbo found it, he was alone, whereas what would have happened if someone else was there? So I think True, that... Yeah. I think that something similar would always happen because the ring has so much uh, power and its ability to corrupt the minds of others and to influence them and to make them temp tempted to desire it above all other items and all other things. So I think that if Bilbo wasn't alone, he, there probably would have been a fight with another character. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. But also in the books, I believe that Gandalf insinuates that whatever kind of hobbit or halfling that Smeagol was, he wasn't as peaceful and and good-natured as the mm -hmm. hobbits are. So I think maybe that also factors in. That's the thing about the hobbits is they are, they are the purest of all beings, I would say. They're just pure. They, they're they just good. They're, they're good-natured and they're pure people. And um, I think they're simple, um, loving people, which makes it important for Frodo to be the one to be the ring bearer because he is the purest am among all other beings in Middle-earth. But again, the ring still has that effect. And in the film... Before Bilbo goes away, he says the lines where I feel thin, sort of stretch, you know, like butter that has been scraped over too much bread. And he even calls the ring his precious, where Gandalf is shocked because only one other person has referred to him in that referred to it in that way. So 
I think even Frodo and Bilbo would have eventually become Gollum if they just ran away and just kept the ring for themselves. And the thing about the ring is it's such an ancient artifact that um, nobody knew where it was, and Gandalf didn't even know what it was until he went and Wikipedia'd it. <laughs> it, it takes 17 years of, of, of research for Gandalf in the book, but yeah, in, in the yeah. movie, it's just like he goes to a library and like shuffles a few pages. Yeah, yeah. like, oh, man, it's the ring. <laughs> and even um, it, and even Saruman didn't know where it was. And uh, I think Saruman's a really fascinating character because he is a, a white wizard in terms of he's supposed to be a, an agent of, of good and purity. But he secretly has been using, I can't remember what that orb is called, but he's been using that orb, which means he's already been tempted by Sauron. And he's very interested in Sauron and his army. And when he just learns of the ring from Gandalf, he shows his true nature as being um, an agent of Sauron. Yeah, you can imagine that Saruman was once a, a just and good wizard like Gandalf is. And even when he's in... Uh, the two towers when Merry and Pippin are with the tree folk, they even talk about how Saruman used to stroll through the woods peacefully. And however, I think that Saruman is more focused on survival and he's corrupted by power now because he thinks there's no way that Sauron will be defeated by, by the beings of middle earth and that it's inevitable that he's going to take over. So he might as well get in while he can get a foot in the door and be, and be his VP. I think <laughs> his running mate. Yeah. I think he's essentially taken the place of, uh, I'd, he'd rather serve the devil than die, than die. You know what I mean? He'd rather be the number two of, of the devil than be a person who falls victim of it. Yeah, so he has no problem becoming a tool for this war that's going to be waged on Middle-earth. And unfortunately, he's a white wizard at the time when Gandalf is a gray wizard until later on in the second How about film. that fight? Yeah. How so, about that wizard fight, Yeah, man? the wizard fight's pretty cool. Oh, my God. I haven't seen so, anything like that before. It was intense, and the music's great. And, but there's a lot of practical practicality to it. And, and Christopher Lee, who plays Saruman, he's actually— he. He passed away a few years ago, but he was an avid uh, Tolkien fan and a huge fan of the of the series. And he um, basically was a super fan and read it every year of his life until he passed away the entire series. And um, he actually met T J R R Tolkien as a as a fan at like a book signing, and he even served as a consultant on the film, helping out with the makeup department and, and costume department, like giving tips because he was so knowledgeable about Lord of the Rings. And he actually wanted to play Gandalf. But Christopher Lee was actually, I think, 20 years or so older than Ian McKellen. And so he was unable to take the part because there's a lot of physicality in terms of Gandalf's role in the films. He needs to be very physical. I know they have plenty of stand-ins and stunt doubles, but Ian McKellen does a lot of stuff in that in these movies, practical-wise and stunt-wise. And so uh, they couldn't. Christopher Lee was unable to take the role, and so they cast Ian McKellen instead for Gandalf. Not to mention, I think Ian just brings this this warmth and and good hearted nature to the role of Gandalf that I really can't picture anybody else doing such a good job. And he's he might be the best cast actor in the entire movie in a way, maybe. And I think that I would agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that Christopher Lee would have done a good job as Gandalf, but I don't think he would have brought what what Ian McKellen did to the role. Is there there's a fatherly quality? There's uh, an infectious charm that Ian McKellen has. Um, and there seems, no matter what role he has, even as Magneto, you, you feel like there's something good within him. And with this movie especially, that goodness pours out of him. And I think Christopher Lee, um, he, I think he's, he just doesn't have that personality 
or that the mannerisms, the, the way he speaks and the he's stuff. more of a villain. Yeah, he's, some he, people he look works like better. Villains. Yeah, he works better as a villain. Like Count Dooku, like he's a great villain. There's a reason why Alan Rickman is Snape. He's perfect as villain. He's he's, yeah. he's been a villain a bunch of times, and there's a reason why. Mm-hmm. Get a play to your strengths, man. As the hobbits take this crazy journey, um, leaving Hobbiton, uh, they encounter. Oh, real quick, there's this great YouTube clip I saw that someone made where you know uh, how Frodo and Sam are leaving the Shire for the first time and they're where the Scarecrow is. And, yeah, it's the and, furthest he's ever and been. Sam's like, this is the furthest step I've ever taken. Someone made that on a loop for an hour. So it's like every time he takes a step, it's like him again going, this is the, if I take one more step, it's the furthest <laughs> I've been away from home. Then he takes a step. That's <laughs> You got to look it up. It's so funny. That's again, it's like, I take one more step. It's the furthest I've ever been from home. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. It's an hour. In terms of um, the hobbits, because I think what they're three feet in height, they're very short. They look like children. Yeah, and but they filmed most of the scenes with Gandalf and the other characters practically in turn, and especially the scenes with Frodo and Gandalf in the first act of the film. It's really amazing production, and they did this with Elf, and they've many other productions have done this, and it's called forced perspective. And the way they do this is that they'll set the scene up and. They'll place one actor, in, in this case, um, Ian McKillen, much closer to the camera. And then and then uh, Elijah Wood is about three or four feet further back. But they build the set to make it look like they're sitting at the same table across from each other. And they, it looks as though they're the same distance from the camera. But because of the lens, it, it blends the image together and makes it look as though they're sitting at the same table where, in fact, Frodo is several feet behind him. And that forced perspective makes it look as though... Frodo is tiny compared to Ian McKellen. Yeah, it's an in-camera optical illusion. It's genius, and it works very well practically and looks real. And they even had several sets where they wanted the camera to move to make it even like more like, guess what? We're not, we're not, no special effects here. <laughs> and the way they did this was they would have the camera move, and then the sets would move, and different set pieces and tables and chairs would move the actors. So the actors and cameras would actually be moving on cue with one another to help uh, provide this technique and to hide the the real size difference. And in terms of um, the other characters of the forces of good, I think Aragorn is probably, he could be my favorite character and he is the ultimate, you could say, leader in this film. Yeah, he is nobility because he's the yeah. descendant of Isildur and he's the Isildur. true king. Isildur, sorry. What, am I, what do I keep saying? Isildur. 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 Say it like it's Spanish. Isildur. Isildur. Oh, that's better now. There there you go. Go. All right, so he's the true king of Gondor and um, the descendant of Isildur, and just I want to give a little backstory on him because I, I'm sure a lot of people are confused how he can speak Elvish and, and why he's part of that culture. Because when he was two years old, his father was killed pursuing orcs, and afterward he was fostered in Rivendell by Elrond, and that's why he, he was raised by elves, and that's why he can speak Elvish, and, and that's where he met Arwen and developed that relationship with her. Um, so cute. <laughs> so he was a little kid, and she was 300 years old. Yeah, but he, but Aragorn is basically. The prophecy of the return of the king of Gondor, who's who's supposed to end the war and to to bring peace to Middle Earth again, and un- unite men, yeah, unite men, mankind, and, yeah, and 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 bring peace to the to the region again. And in in the Fellowship of the Ring, Boromir, he's a prince of Gondor. He's he's the prince of the steward, so he's the son of the steward of Gondor, and the steward is the the king in place. We'll meet in Return of the yeah. King, and uh, so he's not the real king, but he's he's the steward, and so. Boromir and him have this sort of rivalry where Boromir obviously doesn't believe or he's very skeptical of Aragorn and who he is and if he really is the heir to the throne of Gondor. And obviously you probably would be too if you were 
a, a prince of a country or, or or a nation, and then this guy's like, oh, hey, I'm the king. I'm the real king. Because keep in mind, he's just a ranger. Yeah, and even though he's heard of the prophecy and, and the legend, how would you really, how can you know what's the proof? And there's that great scene where him and Boromir, Aragorn and Boromir are observing the pieces of Narsil, which is the sword that Isildur used to, to slice the ring off of, of Sauron's hand. And this is before they set off on their journey. And this is where we get more of that rivalry and the, and the doubtful perspective of Boromir. And also we see a lot of self-doubt in Aragorn because of his bloodline. And he knows who he is, but he kind of, in a way, is, is, is denying it because he doesn't want to have that shame on him where he's part of the bloodline of men that couldn't finish the job of destroying the ring and were corrupted by the ring. So part of him doesn't want to be part of that bloodline away from me when I watch this. Nicholas Cage actually was offered the role of Aragorn, but uh, turned it down. He was Peter Jackson's first choice. So wasn't Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis and Russell Crowe as well. And Peter Jackson actually cast an actor named Stuart Townsend, and uh, he was much younger. I think he was in his mid-20s, and they filmed for two weeks. He filmed several scenes as Aragorn, and um, Peter Jackson ended up deciding that he was too young for the role, and he fired him during production, and then... They got a hold of Viggo Mortensen, who had never read the books before, didn't know anything about Lord of the Rings, but his son was a big fan. So his son was like, you have to do this role. You have to do it. So uh, Viggo, I think probably the money was good too. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he he accepted the role and then he flew to New Zealand. Read the book on the way. Read the book on the way, flew to New Zealand. And his first scene was when he had to fight the wraiths on top of that small hill mountaintop uh, defending the hobbits. And he had never held a sword before. So that's his first day on set. He got like a crash course in fencing. Yeah. And I think that Vigo brings so much to the character um, that so many, so few actors could have brought. And he becomes an ultimate version of like uh, what, it, what it means to be a great person, a great leader, a great warrior. And Vigo also performed pretty much all of his own stunts. And uh, he even insisted on using a real sword. Not most swords. Like all the swords on production are usually rubber or plastic or some kind of material that it's not harmful, but he wanted a real steel sword the entire time on set. And he even carried the sword around with him and took it with him everywhere when he wasn't shooting. I'm sure it wasn't sharp though. Yeah, probably a little bit, but You'd kill somebody. Okay, maybe it wasn't sharp. <laughs> <laughs> but he would he actually got stopped by police um and was questioned by police multiple times because he was just like around town carrying a sword. <laughs> <laughs> and and Vigo in a way is like a real life Aragorn because Vigo is a very cultured person and very interesting and highly intelligent and adventurous himself and I think he's fluent in like seven languages or not completely fluent but he's completely fluent in I think four languages but he can speak uh, three other languages. Yeah he speaks like Spanish, he speaks uh, obviously English, Danish. French, Italian, he speaks a bunch of different languages and it's incredible. He learned Arabic for um, Hidalgo. Yeah and I think I, there's even press video of him like giving speeches in, in Arabic and it's like what can this guy not do and he showed up to set like reading books in ancient languages and they're like this is the perfect guy for Aragorn. Was already an interest of him before he got cast so he yeah you're right he just brought that element of aragorn that i don't think anybody else was and that what and that's what brings so much more to his character in terms of the elfish language and he wanted more of the elvish language in the film they originally didn't have so much of that of that elvish language between him and arwen and in those scenes and and i love how he speaks elvish with legless a lot so i think that that element too is what makes him probably the most interesting character of the heroes and the elvish language is actually a, a real language that J.A.R.R. tolkien created 
Uh, he actually, it was not a full language, but he created a, a pretty extensive dictionary of the Elvish language. And a dialect coach was hired and he trained the actors to speak Elvish by, he himself listened to old recordings of J.R.R. Tolkien reading his book aloud. And so he heard how J.R.R. Tolkien pronounced the Elvish words. And so he taught this to the actors so they were able to speak it perfectly in terms of how Tolkien won the dialect spoken. Imagine being that smart that you just create a language. Yeah, that guy's wicked smart, man. <laughs> As in, in terms of writing a book too, which is probably unnecessary. And then obviously Arwen is his love interest and, and they're very much in love. And Arwen is Elrond's daughter. She's an elf, obviously. And like we said, she's about a little over 2,700 years old. And she has a very complex plot and, and very moving story where she is in a dilemma to either pursue the immortality of being an elf and taking that final act, you can say, of, of their culture, or she could stay, marry Aragorn, and become mortal and accept death, which is the gift of mortality in a way. And so she has that complex storyline where she's battling between her father and Aragorn and and she doesn't really know what to do, but it's a beautiful romance, and I love how it ends, and we all know that she becomes the Queen of Gondor. She actually doesn't have that much um, in the first book at all. She's yeah. just barely mentioned, but... She actually isn't even in the book. It's a different elf that saves Frodo on horseback. Yeah, yeah. yeah so they actually change it to Arwen. Yeah. Man, I mean, would you do that for Vigo? <laughs> Probably. He's a very good looking... That jawline and beard is like... The, the scruff and jawline do it for me, man. <laughs> And, and then so we talk so much about handsome guys on the yeah. show. I mean, we're, it's, <laughs> hey, we're not we're not afraid to appreciate a handsome guy. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> What's cool about the elves is that um, there are different races of elves, and you can tell the race based upon their eye color. And so, different elves, the different elf races have different eye colors. And so, the Lothlorien elves have light blue eyes, and the Rivendell elves have uh, dark blue eyes. And so, you can easily see that there are different races of elves as well. And Arwen's actually Galadriel's granddaughter in the book. And my favorite elf has got to be Legolas. Oh, he's pretty cool. Legolas, Legolas. <laughs> <laughs> Almost 3,000-year-old elf who's a master archer, keen eyesight, sensitive hearing. And he comes to the Council of Elrond in Rivendell um, and is one of the original members of the Fellowship of the Ring. And him and what I love about him is him and Gimli have this great back-and-forth relationship. Oh, yeah, counting where, kills. Yeah, where they're, they start off rivals because the elves and the dwarfs don't get along. They've probably gone to war, I think, a few times, and they just don't like each other in their races, but they end up becoming very good friends. And and that's one of the best parts of the film is films are is the heart that them two bring to the Fellowship. I love in Two Towers when... Uh, uh, Gimli asks Aragorn to throw him across the, the opening, and then uh, he's like, don't tell the elf. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so fun, but Legolas is very he's a very cool guy, and he's he's obviously the most experienced uh, combated soldier, and he's, he's probably the best fighter of them all because he's a master archer, and he's great with swords too, and he's physically gifted more than anyone else in the film. Yeah, he can um he can see miles in the distance and then also he's so elves are so light on their feet that um when they walk on top of snow they don't fall into the snow. Yeah, they barely leave footprints. Yeah. So when you there are scenes when they're traveling through snow, the entire fellowship is like digging through like three foot high snow and then Legolas is just like walking past them like on top of the snow like, hey what's up guys? Yeah in the books he doesn't even leave footprints, I believe. Yeah. Um and also David, Orlando Bloom originally or auditioned for the part of Faramir, who we see in the Two Towers. And this is um, Boromir's brother, played by David Wineham, the 
he's the narrator in 300 if you remember him you recognize him if you saw him and um he auditioned for that part but then he was called back and was instead cast as legolas by surprise yeah we all know about uh the monster 2000s that Orlando Bloom had with the the Pirates franchise, the Lord of the Rings franchise, and this guy exploded on the spot. And I think obviously Legolas was his first movie role, right? First movie. He was he got the role while he was still in drama school, which is insane, and just yeah. skyrocketed to fame and fortune. And he's he's terrific in these movies. And again, he's has that relationship with Gimli, who's a well respected dwarf. And I think one of the reasons why Gimli is so enticed to be a part of the Fellowship is because of that rivalry with Legolas and the elves. And I think that he kind of wants to prove the elves wrong, but also Gimli he brings that sense humor to the group and those hilarious one-liners and how he can never keep up with running and everything like that so he's just a we dwarves of, are natural sprinters are <laughs> dangerous in short distances so <laughs> he's he's a great comic relief throughout this, the franchise in the books i believe that gimli is added to the fellowship as a way of representing the final race on middle earth so that each race in middle earth had a representation in the fellowship to kind of be fair and it's play he's played by john reese davis i believe yeah yeah and Famous for Indiana Jones. Which is really cool. And he's actually the tallest actor out of all the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. In real life. Not not, not in the movie. <laughs> it's like Hagrid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Sam Wise is, is the next best Hobbit. <laughs> um, but I love Sam Wise. I think he is the, uh, he's the ultimate companion in... He proves that he's willing to do anything for Frodo and to help Frodo and to aid Frodo. And he'll do anything he'll, for Frodo. He'll rub that back if he wants. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Aston actually gained 30 pounds for his role as Samwise Gamgee. But Sam, is, he's a really important character because he represents that ordinary world, uh, the simple pleasures of life. Um, he keeps and, Frodo grounded. Yeah, and he also he, he brings to light what makes war worthwhile why go to fight go why fight why risk your life and because without that simple heroicism and the defense of of happy life what is the point of the story and what is the point of being a hero you could argue that sam is the most important character in the entire series because like you said he acts as a constant voice of reason for frodo when frodo is in doubt and then also he literally carries frodo up the mount doom yeah, Frodo could never could finish could finish his journey to Mount Doom without yeah. Samwise. Yeah, so you say Sam is probably vital to the completion of the mission. And Sam's loyalty to Frodo obviously never falters, and he never gives up on Frodo, which we learned throughout the series. He never stops supporting him, even when Frodo abandons abandons him later on. He's just he's such a good friend, and and he he just he joins this journey just out of his strong moral character. Yeah, he does that. He has moral fiber. Yeah. He has moral fiber. And Peter Jackson, uh, I love, he he brings some really great filmmaking in terms of uh, classical filmmaking and practical effects and his history of working in horror in New Zealand. He made a few horror films and were his early films. So he brings a lot of like great gore to the films. And that, like freak out shots. Yeah, freak out shots that keep it in the PG-13 range but are still like pretty scary. I mean, the orcs are terrifying in this in these movies. And I remember being a kid and just being horrified by them. But that's part of the, the experience is like you can you, you feel fear just like how the characters feel fear. So it's not like they're coddling you as as you watch these movies. You know what I mean? And then Merry and Pippin, obviously, they bring a lot of comic relief too, and they're they're really fun in Hobbiton when they set off the fire, the dragon firework, and 
they join the journey with Sam and Frodo, and they go through massive transformations as characters where, you know, they're very innocent and playful and always goofing around to where they become serious, uh, contrib- they provide serious contributions to the war. You know, they help bring down Isengard, and they're integral figures to this to this uh, story. Yeah, once again, the smallest of people can have the biggest impacts. And then the final member of the Fellowship of the Ring is Boromir, and he's a Prince of Gondor again, the heir of the Steward, and skeptical of Aragorn and and Boromir refuses to declare Aragorn his king until he until it's his dying words when he finally accepts him for who he is and that's because I think Boromir didn't have enough time to see the kind of man that Aragorn is and what he represents and how good of a person he is and how he does have those those traits that are required to be the true heir and legend of the king of Gondor and then he dies, like he always does. But he did. <laughs> but he is heroic because Boromir, he goes through temptation of the ring himself, where he attacks Frodo and basically tries to steal the ring from him at the end of the film because he's become corrupted. He wants it for himself. He has. He's also full of envy. He's like, why it should be mine? Why can't it be me? I want to be the person that has to bring the ring. You can't do it. You can't be trusted with this task. Do you really think that you'll achieve this? And he thinks that. It's only him that can do it because obviously men will be corrupted by it. And you also see that kind of perspective in terms of Return of the King with his brother Foromir, who who takes his men on that suicide mission to gain, but to try and gain back the city, um, even though it's been lost to the orcs, and out of the need to prove something to his father. So I think it, their father is so overbearing and such a, a dominating person in their lives that he elicits this desire to become to 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 overcompensate in a way yeah and you can obviously say that they're they're overcompensating because they aren't the true kings and heirs of gondor they're not the real king and maybe he's skeptical of aragorn because he doesn't want to admit who he is because he doesn't want to give up his potential rule over gondor yeah he's insecure poor guy (laughs) he's super insecure in this movie poor guy and and in terms of the production of this movie uh, the world building was uh, incredible and like I said earlier, Peter Jackson used a lot of great old filmmaking techniques combined with the new technology in terms of model building, in terms of miniature building. and Like there's that great shot at Isengard um, where Saruman has been building the army for some time now. And Peter Jackson in one shot takes a camera from the sky down deep into the crevices of the earth and to see all these uh, orcs building and working and all the different setups and production they have going on. And it's an amazing combination of using models and CGI to combine shots together. And it's very much like a, a stop motion film in a lot of ways. And many of these shots is shot like that. And I think he brought a great old school filmmaking aesthetic and production to it. And that's why I think he was able to keep the budget down so low to, cause yeah, $300 million is a lot, but three movies, it's not that much, especially in terms of the Scott, the size and the scope of what these movies look like. Like, when I watch this movie, I'm like, how did he get this made with $100 million? It's pretty incredible. And in terms of world building, there's also an important aspect of the film that has no relation to the to the books and the stories is Lurtz, who's like the head Urukai. He's like the general, and he's he's that orc that has the big white handprint on his head, and he's the main villain, basically, to the, to the heroes outside of Sauron and Saruman, because... Peter Jackson and the screenwriters, I think it was so important to create this character because it's a film. So you really need that visceral presence of a villain or an antagonist to actually be in the way 
oftentimes of the heroes or be on the trail of the heroes to to directly counter their movements and he's basically an extension of the evil of sauron in a way in middle earth and i think it's important for them to have created this character lurch who's played by lawrence mccore who's a new zealander and he actually also plays the the witch king of angmore and also gothmog gothmog in return of the king and Bolg in The Hobbit, Desolation of Smog. Smog. He and Peter Jackson must be pals. Best buds. And so he's basically like the general of the Orkai. Hmm. Right? I, didn't, I didn't know he, was in the, he wasn't in the books. Yeah, but I think it's a really important character, though, because you, you really need that presence. Because otherwise, it's just a big, giant eyeball that's really far away. And Sar- Saruman, he's always in his, in his tower. So, I mean, where, where's the direct threat for the characters? It's, yeah, that's, how, that's why we mentioned earlier that Gollum makes the other movies better because of its presence. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, not Two Towers is better, but Return of the King is better because of his presence. And in that final fight, it, it brings more to the ending of the film where Boromir sacrifices himself to save the hobbits because he's trying to redeem himself for his temptation and trying to attack Frodo. And he dies at the hands of Lurtz, and then Aragorn slays Lurtz. And so it brings so much more emotionality to the ending of the film. Chops that dude's head off. Yeah. And actually, during the fight with Lurtz versus Aragorn, because of the heavy makeup that... Uh, Lawrence had to wear for the character he couldn't really see and so when he actually throws that dagger at Oregon or Oregon when he, <laughs> throws, Oregon. When he throws the dagger at Portland Oregon <laughs> when he throws the dagger at Aragorn Aragorn actually well Viggo Mortensen hits it away with the sword that was not planned and it was a real knife heading for his face that could have seriously hurt him that's great that's they great kept, they kept on his feet yeah they kept it in the movie because it looked it looked great I, I mean yeah it's great thinking on your feet self-defense <laughs> not wanting a knife in the face <laughs> jesus and what's great about the ending of this battle is the fellowship breaks up because that's not what you wanted to you expected to happen you expected that oh they're gonna go on this epic three movie journey together all all eight or nine of them at this point and what happens is frodo leaves them and abandons them and then but then samwise catches up with him and the reason frodo leaves is because he realizes that he has to because galadriel told him that um the ring ultimately, which is why I said no one will be able to ever completely turn down the ring. The ring will eventually, she tells him, corrupt every member of the Fellowship. So he has to get away from them to prevent them from ruining the mission and to prevent them from turning against him. Yeah, it's basically a selfless act of sacrifice where he doesn't want anything bad to happen to his friends. He doesn't want any more people to die because of him. But of course, Samwise is right there in the boat trying to catch up to him and he's going to follow him to the end. And I think we got to talk a little bit about probably the most visually stunning and intense scene of the movie is the Mines of Moria. And this is beautifully filmed and it's very dark and it's like a horror part. It's like a horror film in a way, like a horror short film in the mines. And you see the dead dwarfs and the skeletons and, and Gimli is shocked that uh, the, the mines have been overrun and taken over by orcs and Yorkai. And we have that great fight with the, the troll, obviously, which is you know, troll in the dungeon. <laughs> it's ironic that Chamber of Secrets, I mean, uh, that Sorcerer's Stone and this were like almost around the same time. Yeah. And uh, they both have trolls, trolls were real big back then. But they were could, they were so hot back then. <laughs> Hansel's so hot so right now. So hot right now. <laughs> and the troll looks solid. It still kind of holds up to this day. It's not horrible CGI, but at the time it was fantastic and phenomenal. And and 
I love the chase scene where they're running through these mines and it's so dark, but the, the flames are lighting them. They're surrounded by orcs and orakai and then those giant steps, which were actually, it was a miniature set that they built of those giant steps. And I believe that Peter Jackson didn't really know how he wanted to shoot that until he saw the miniature model. Then he basically figured out how he wanted to create that entire sequence of going down the steps with those cool shots of the bow and arrows, the arrows going at their orcs and everything from it's, the distance. It's amazing production and it's unbelievable because it's still, it still holds up to this day. Yeah. It still looks great. It's the most intense part of the film. And then obviously the epic you shall not pass of gandalf holding off the balrag and he falls balrog 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 and and the balrog uh grabs him and and pulls him down to the endless fall which we get to see in the opening of the two towers and it's a very intense moment because the fellowship believes that they've lost their leader gandalf and now the morale is low the hope is low and this is sets up the scene where they get attacked by the orcs at by the river this movie's so epic. Well, because after after that they go to the elves. Oh yeah, they go to Lothlorien. Because this, this movie's it's insanely epic. Because because you expect this seems like it's the climax of the movie, right, but it's yeah, not. Yeah. It's the third act hasn't even started yet. So that's how dense this movie is and how epic this movie is in terms of scale and and the size of it. Because there's this amazing sequence and it's not even the end of the movie yet. And so I think that Peter Jackson did an amazing job depicting these scenes. And it's just, and once the fellowship gets going, it's just nonstop and it's unbelievable. And I remember when we saw this in theaters and the ultimate cliffhanger of what's going to happen next in the next film. And I'd never seen anything like it. And I still love all these films. I can watch them anytime, any day. I've, I've seen them all 20, 25 times and I'll, I'll put them on any night. No problem. And no problem. It's the, probably the greatest trilogy of film ever made. And that's going past The Godfather, The Dark Knight Rises. It's, it's probably the best one. Yeah, I agree with you. It could be. Want to hear some uh, cool, fun facts about Lord of the Rings? I would really enjoy that. Here we go. <laughs> Ready, everyone? So Sean Bean, who plays Boromir, has an intense fear of flying. And he'll only fly if it's absolutely necessary. And there's no other way around it. And so obviously in lots of these scenes, they shot on location in New Zealand and on top, top mountains. And for the production, what would happen was the crew and actors would be flown, up atop, flown on top of these mountains on helicopters, like two or three at a time. But Sean Bean, being so terrified of flying, is he refused to go on a helicopter. And so what he would do is every morning before before filming, he would get into his Boromir wardrobe and he would hike up the mountains for two hours each morning to, to the set rather than taking a helicopter. And then he would hike down at the end of the day. I think one of the reasons that this film looks so visually stunning is that Tolkien artists... Alan Lee and John Ho, they were responsible with creating the concept art of this film. And it's just as integral, you can see visually, as like those original concept drawings were for Star Wars. And if you look at the images, they're they're stunning. And it seems like Peter Jackson really tried to stay as close as he could to the images that were created by Alan Lee and John Ho. Like we said earlier, all three of these films in the franchise, they were filmed simultaneously back to back to back. And the shooting lasted 274 days over a total of 16 months and this is ex exactly the same amount of time that was taken for francis ford coppola to film the movie apocalypse now it's estimated that filming of the lord of the rings trilogy pumped about 200 million dollars into the new zealand economy and the new zealand government even created a minister for lord of the rings whose job was to exploit all of the economic opportunities that the movies represented I would love to go to Hobbiton. I know. That would be so cool. We got to go there sometime. 
when Gandalf had his iconic scene telling Balrog, you shall not pass, Ian McKellen was actually acting opposite a green ping pong ball, which was sitting atop a stick. And then they use, obviously, green screen and CGI to create the Balrog. But imagine Ian McKellen on set screaming, you shall not pass to a little ping pong. J.R.R. Tolkien signed the rights to the Lord of the Rings away in 1968 for a total of $15,000, which equates to only just under $100,000 in current dollars. And even though his family was upset about the filmmaking of, of his books, they couldn't do anything about it because New Line owned the rights. And what's nuts is George R.R. Martin just signed like a $50 million five-year deal with, deal with HBO. So that guy got a ton of money for that. That's crazy. I love this fact. The Beatles wanted to star in an adaptation of Lord of the Rings, and they even asked Stanley Kubrick to direct, but Kubrick declined, feeling the book was unfilmable. And the cast would have been Paul McCartney as Frodo, George Harrison as Gandalf, Ringo Starr as Samwise, and John Lennon as Gollum. (laughs) (laughs) Of course John Lennon would want to be Gollum. (laughs) He was the silliest of all of them, so it makes sense. 1,800 Hobbit feet were made for the production, and even though they had to put the prosthetic feet on top on the actors every single day of filming, uh, Sean Astin said that he remembered that there were at least 50 days in which their feet weren't even on camera. And that wraps our episode on The Fellowship of the Ring. Really hope you enjoyed this. We're going to do all three films in the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned for The Two Towers and The Return of the King. Be sure to head on over to RaidersOfLostPodcast.com. Check out all of our merch, our custom movie posters, and you can also sign up there at for Patreon.com slash RaidersOfLostPodcast to become a member today and help support the show. So thank you so much to everyone who watched, listened, and tuned into this episode around the world. Take care, everyone.